You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For January 10th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Well, I hope you're all rested and fired up for another year of transition talk. I know I am. This episode also marks the first full year since we started asking listeners to support us with paid subscriptions, and you have not disappointed us. Our audience has continued to grow steadily and not only allowed us to pay our bills and keep investing in the show's development, but has also put us on track to becoming a fully self-sustaining enterprise. So my sincere thanks to all of you for validating my faith that amid an endless array of sponsored content and many other podcasts vying for your limited time and attention, that there are enough of you who are willing to part with your hard-earned cash to enable us to produce the highest quality energy podcast we can create. Okay, on with the show. In several previous episodes, notably episode 20 with Eric Gimon and episode 27 with Marissa Humman, we talked about some of the ways that we're beginning to try to match demand to supply rather than the other way around as more renewables come onto the grid. Because renewables run when they run and aren't dispatchable, that is, at least until we have a grid in which they are more extensively buttressed by storage or transmission, shifting demand to intervals when electricity is abundant and cheap and away from intervals where the grid is constrained or where meeting demand would require firing up a dispatchable fossil fuel generator is not only a way to keep prices down and optimize the grid overall, but also a way to integrate more renewable supply and displace fossil fuels. Up until recently, most forms of demand response and demand flexibility have been implemented in a fairly crude fashion, by setting time-of-use electricity rates where power is cheap during off-peak periods of the day and expensive during on-peak periods. Customers on these time-of-use rates can then plan their activities around those periods to save a little money and help utilities avoid having to invest in expensive, infrequently used peak capacity. Or utilities may ask customers to reduce their power demands or directly curtail their power availability during occasional critical peak intervals and give customers some compensation for being flexible. But now we're entering a new era of technologies, including artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the so-called Internet of Things, which could let us moderate loads and operate grid assets in a much more intelligent, precise, and dynamic fashion, taking grid optimization to a new level and reducing the need for peaking resources. This is a new way of doing things, and only a few places in the world even have grid operators and markets that would give demand response and demand flexibility sufficient compensation to stimulate their development, let alone companies that can actually control demand and deliver a precisely timed and priced degree of flexibility. Today's guest is the founder of one such company, which is not only delivering a new level of demand flexibility, she's also going after capacity markets and other market rules which the fossil fuel industry has managed to write into market regulations precisely to prevent the kind of resource flexibility that her company offers. Sarah Bell is the founder of Tempest Energy, which operates in the UK, Sweden, and South Australia. 
Putting her background in financial risk management and energy system innovation to use, her company has developed a platform which uses algorithms, machine learning, and demand response technology to reduce energy costs for customers, boost the efficiency of renewables, and reduce the need for expensive power plants that sit idle and running just to meet occasional peak demand. Tempest also launched the first flexible electricity retailer in the world and created a new business model for the utility of the future. She's an innovator and a visionary, and it's a great pleasure to have her on the show. Then, in the news segment, we'll talk about a recent World Bank decision to stop investing in fossil fuel projects, a new paper on the LCA of wind and solar that makes a nice coda to the previous episode of this show, a powerful piece of investigative journalism about how lobbyists push the cost of failed nuclear and clean coal plants onto consumers, and an ambitious new effort to model an optimized grid for all of North America, and a new record low price for wind in Mexico. But first, our conversation with Sarah Bell, recorded December 16th, 2017. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Sarah, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much. So now, this is a strictly non-commercial show, and I generally eschew any guests who might be inclined to talk about their own companies or products. But I decided to make an exception in this case because your company, Tempest Energy, has been doing some very cool stuff with demand flexibility, and that's not an area where too many people have much expertise. Plus, you actually have a wide range of other interests we can talk about. So with that little disclaimer out of the way, I'd like to start discussing your work on demand flexibility, and then we can move on to a few other topics. Sound good? Yes, that's great. Okay. So listeners to this show are certainly well aware of technologies like demand response and aware of the concept of load shifting more generally, as well as with the Internet of Things technologies that would enable load shifting to be carried out by algorithms and autonomous devices. But I don't think any of us really have much experience with AI-based controls and machine learning applications of demand flexibility. So perhaps you could give us a brief nuts and bolts description of exactly how your platform works, hopefully with a tangible example that we can wrap our heads around. Yes, of course. So our platform basically does two things. We predict the closing electricity market price before the market has closed. So we use AI to do that prediction. But we also predict how our customers' assets react to, uh, to changes in consumption. So for example, if you turn the air conditioning chiller off for half an hour, then there'll be a slow rising in the temperature of the building. How long does that take? How does that interact with outside air um, temperature? How many people are in the building, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to understand all of those aspects about how the asset that we're using for flexibility works, as well as predicting the price. Hmm. I'm just going to talk for a moment about predicting the price. Yes. So everyone's really clear about what it is we're predicting. Unlike when you buy shares, for example, when you know exactly the price you're transacting at, when we use electricity in real time, we have no idea what the price of that electricity is. That price hits us after the fact because that price is determined by how many other customers are using electricity. The higher the demand, the more generation is needed. And so we're predicting something before that price is known. To do that prediction, you have to predict demand in total for whatever market you're predicting price for, and then you need to predict the price of different supply units, because effectively, 
you're trying to work out where demand is going to cross supply on the price stack and therefore what the price will be. So that's a fairly complicated prediction because weather, particularly in places like South Australia, have such a big impact on how much generation there is as well as how much demand there is. So it's that combination of predicting total demand and predicting total supply, working out where they cross, and then predicting what within buildings or assets, what the feedback loop from using or not using electricity might be. So just as a tangible example, for example, a commercial building in Adelaide, let's say we predict that there's going to be a price spike at 9am, Many commercial buildings would ordinarily turn their air conditioning chillers on around 7.30, 8am to start cooling the building. But if they start at 8am, they'll have to keep going at 9am because they haven't had the chiller on for long enough to cool the building to a level where the inhabitants of the building, the users of the building are comfortable. Right. So if we predict there's going to be a price spike at 9 We might turn that chiller on at, say, 4.30 or 5 a.m., chill the building ahead of time, and then turn off the chiller when the price spikes. The people using the building don't feel any discomfort because the building is cool, but the cost that has been possible to achieve there is radically different because that building has avoided a high price spike. Okay, so I think... You've just answered the question that was kind of lurking in the back of my mind, which is why is it important to be able to predict the price? I think the answer is because it allows you to really optimize the value of your demand response. Exactly. But more and more in real markets where there's been growth in renewables, low prices are a signal of high availability of renewable power and price spikes are a signal of high carbon intensity in the grid mix. Mm. Therefore, from an energy transition point of view, uh, the price becomes a proxy for when you can maximize use of renewables. Yeah, yeah that's which great. Which is ultimately what we're really about. Yeah, yeah. So does a customer have to have some sort of a time-varying electricity tariff, like a time-of-use rate, in order to capture the value of your load-shifting technology? Or are you able to, for example, aggregate resources and bid demand response in a larger block or use some other product in wholesale markets? So the customer's tariff really depends on their electricity retailer. Uh, Of course, if they buy directly from the spot market, uh, then the work that we do for them would then automatically create value. But an electricity retailer, and we've been a retailer in the UK for a while, which was partly having a living lab to be able to create our technology. Hmm. So a retailer could choose to do a fixed tariff and basically take the view that if the customer has agreed to be flexible, then they shouldn't be worrying about what time they're flexible. The technology does that. Therefore, they don't need a time-varying electricity tariff. And that's very much the approach that we took in our retail business and one that we think works very well for customers. Um, You could do a time-varying tariff, but personally, I think that's a little bit of a, here's the price risk, and therefore the retailer just shoves the price risk on the customer. The whole concept of demand flexibility is essentially, let's come together, work together to reduce the price risk, and let's make sure we both benefit. 
Yeah, this is a really interesting point because we've discussed various aspects of this in previous episodes. And I guess I would maybe summarize it as follows, that if you need your customer to actually be the responsive load, then you need to expose to them a time-varying price signal. And in which case, you're really depending on that to get the response that you need. And so you want to reward them financially for supplying demand at the right times and, and reducing their demand at the wrong times. Whereas if you have a technology that's doing the response, then you can actually just sort of aggregate and socialize the economic benefit of the demand response that you're doing and apply that across the entire customer base and maintain a flat rate and you don't need to expose them to a varying price signal. Is that more or less right? Yes, that's exactly right. Fantastic. And I think because so many customers are used to getting a fixed price, uh, in some ways it's easier for customers to understand that. Hmm. You know, this is interesting because when we had Marissa Humman on, she used to be at Emerald. She's now at a company called Tendril here in Boulder that does demand response. She was actually making a similar argument that, you know, instead of kind of moving toward this future of, you know, maybe where all devices using Internet of Things technologies, participating now suddenly in real-time markets, that it's easier actually for the utility, given its view of all the assets on the system, to be the aggregator and the balancer and to just optimize the system as it best knows how and then just give customers a much simpler, flatter price. Yes, I completely agree with that. Hmm. And personally, I think if the customer has agreed to be flexible, then they have interacted with the grid and they have done their bit. So they should be rewarded. Yeah, okay. So what kind of assets are you primarily targeting for demand flexibility with your platform? Do you focus on particular sectors like industrial, commercial, or residential? Or do you focus on specific devices like water heaters and air conditioners? Or is there any segmenting at all going on? So in the work that we're doing now in South Australia with Origin, we are focusing only on commercial and industrial customers to begin with. There's a relationship between the cost it takes to unlock the flexibility and how much flexibility the customer has so that it delivers most benefit to those customers. In our own electricity retail business here in the UK, we did do it with every single customer type. So, for example, my own home was flexible. My dishwasher would come on in the middle of the night, linked to oversupply of wind generation in Scotland because that oversupply made the market low or negative. So it is possible across the whole spectrum of electricity customers, but it makes most sense to focus on the larger ones first. And the sorts of assets we're using is things like you'd expect air conditioning chillers, refrigeration, battery storage to some extent in South Australia. And there isn't very much electric heating loads in South Australia, but there are some loads like big fans that you can optimize as well. So what we do when a customer is interested, we basically go and do a flexibility service and survey all their sites and look at what's possible. Hmm. So it's quite bespoke in that sense. Yeah, that surprises me. I wouldn't have guessed that. So can you give us an example of what a demand flexibility offer would look like? You know, like what are the terms and What's the compensation like? Sure. 
So in our retail business here in the UK, we offered fixed tariffs and all our tariffs undercut every single electricity retailer in the country. Really? So, and for those of us in the US who are not accustomed to understanding this wacky beast known as the UK electricity <laughs> market, <laughs> where you actually have retail competition, how many options of electricity providers might a customer in the UK even have? I think there's 30 or 35 different retailers now. Right. Where so all of us here in the US have basically one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes, I mean, it, it is a very competitive market and we outcompeted everyone. That's incredible. In South Australia, we're working with Origin Energy and they have never done anything like this before. So we're running a six month trial where we have not given an offer to the customer yet. We've basically said to the customers, um, Origin would like to understand what the value is here so that they can design an appropriate customer offer. But the pilot is about finding out the value. I think you've already discussed South Australia Bridge on your show before. Mm -hmm. but it has a very peaky electricity market because it's an energy only market, which means if you designed a tariff in one particular year where there have been multiple price spikes, that tariff might not be suitable in the subsequent year. So it does require a little bit of experimentation and analysis. And that's the work that we're doing with Origin Energy at the moment. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Actually, our conversation with Jenny Reese of the Australian Energy Market Operator, AMO, in episode 39 was really very popular. Of course, she was a fantastic guest. But you know, Tempest, your company is working in, as you mentioned, not only South Australia and the UK, but also Sweden. And you know, I just think our listeners might appreciate a little more detail about exactly how the operations you're doing on the South Australian grid are working and what you hope to accomplish there. And so South Australia has some extraordinary opportunities, I think. Um, there are other places that have gone earlier to high renewable uptake in the grid, for example, Denmark. But Denmark relies incredibly heavily on Norwegian and Swedish hydroelectric power to balance the system when the renewables are not there. South Australia doesn't have that luxury. They have to find solutions within their state. They have only one interconnector to the neighboring state, Victoria. So in some ways, that's obviously a constraint, but that also offers an extraordinary opportunity because if you can solve this problem in South Australia, you can solve it anywhere. Hmm. So we are working to basically develop demand flexibility as much as possible there and help to show that you can decarbonize very rapidly and at the lowest possible cost to customers if you match renewables with demand flexibility. For us, it's an extraordinary place to demonstrate that. And I really hope that South Australia is the state that decarbonizes at lowest cost as rapidly as possible, because that will show that it's possible and in some ways, I guess, validate the government there. Hmm. I'm guessing that you have a pretty active engagement, I suppose, with the AMO grid operator in order to accomplish all this. Yes and no, hmm. because what we do is a purely market-based solution. We're basically finding value that exists in the market 
and utilising our technology to extract that value, if you like. So AMO shouldn't necessarily have to interact with us. In fact, they've been amazingly helpful. Um, we rely on a lot of data from AMO and they've been quite excited by what we're doing. But unlike demand response, where you're effectively selling services to a system operator, with demand flexibility, this is very much about taking the value that sits in the market that is accessible. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I really did want to discuss the sort of fine-tuned difference between demand flexibility and demand response. So in the case of demand response, I think it's, at least in my mind, it seems like the value that you're getting from that is going to be passed more or less directly onto the customer. And maybe demand flexibility is more of a value that gets internalized by the grid operator. Is that a fair way to put it? No, I would also say that demand flexibility, the benefit of that should flow directly to the customer if they're exposed to the full market risk or being shared by the customer and the retailer um, if they're both exposing themselves. Because effectively, what demand flexibility is about is reducing the price risk premium that anyone supplying electricity has. So as a retailer, in offering a customer a fixed tariff, they basically take price risk. Sometimes the wholesale price will be above the retail price, sometimes it will be below, but they work out how much on average that retail price should be so that they cover all different price points. Mm -hmm. So if you are able to use demand flexibility to avoid the high price events, and in South Australia, the market tops at $14,000 a megawatt hour. Because <laughs> yeah, so that's an energy-only market. Real price yeah. <laughs> so if you avoid those periods, then the risk premium that needs to be applied to an electricity retail contract is lower. So that's the value that demand flexibility pulls out. So basically, instead of the retailer or the customer, if they're a big user, instead of them hedging their price risk with buying electricity on the forward market, they're effectively using their flexibility to avoid the price spikes in real time. Hmm. So it's a physical price risk management rather than a financial one. Does that make sense? It does. I guess there's a part of my mind here that really wants to fixate on how is the value distributed? You know, how is it shared? How does a customer who's participating in this really capture their contribution to that value? And I guess it's just because the market operator is giving it back to them at some level. It's not contractual, though. No, exactly. So if you just think of an example where a customer might buy directly from the market, when they are exposing themselves to what's called the pool price, if the pool price is $14,000 a megawatt hour, for that half an hour, that's the price they would pay. So everything that they avoid in that price spike is a revenue for them because they've avoided a cost. Mm -hmm. And that's the amount. Mm -hmm. So at some point on the other side of that transaction is an electricity generator, which won't be able to sell as much generation because demand has come down. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In early December, the World Bank announced that it would cease to invest in upstream oil and gas projects after 2019. That means that starting two years from now, the bank will no longer invest in projects involving oil and gas exploration and production. The bank did outline an exception in which they might invest in upstream natural gas projects in very poor countries where there is a clear benefit to energy access. And by specifying upstream projects, that doesn't mean that they won't continue to invest in downstream projects like refining, pipelines, and so on. But in general, citing the low cost of wind and solar, the bank said that the move was intended to support the Paris Agreement goal of keeping global temperature rise to below 2 degrees C. The bank stopped lending for coal-fired power stations in 2010, but has continued to lend $1 billion a year for oil and gas projects in developing countries. Oil and gas projects currently account for 1-2% to of the bank's $280 billion portfolio. Item 2. As a timely follow-up to our discussion on life cycle analysis with Garvin Heath in the previous episode, a new paper published in the journal Nature Energy measured the full life cycle greenhouse gas emissions of a range of sources of electricity through 2050, and it found that the carbon footprint of solar, wind, and nuclear power is many times lower than coal or gas plants equipped with carbon capture and storage, or CCS, including the emissions from... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. Thank you.